reinventing Jesus. That's what a lot of scholars are trying to do in many best-selling books and movies today. This is Evidence and Answers with author and speaker Pat Zuckerman. Today, you'll hear from a scholar who will answer the criticisms of skeptical voices who deny the accuracy of what Jesus Christ said and did. It's going to be a fascinating program. Pat? Yes, Kevin. With us, returning from last week, is Dr. Dan Wallace, professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written probably what's now the standard grammar book for intermediate Greek, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, and Exegetical Syntax of the New Testament. Outstanding book. Kevin, if this book was the book that was used in my second year Greek class, I guarantee you I would have gotten an A. Really? That's right. right. At least an A minus. Okay. (laughs) And so with us this week to speak on this top topic of the reinventing of Jesus is Dr. Dan Wallace. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be on the show again. Well, Dan, there's a movement out there to reinvent Jesus. Now, what's going on here? What's the source and the origin behind this movement here to reinvent Jesus Christ? Attempts to to reinvent Jesus are nothing new. The vines of radical skepticism toward the biblical Christ have been creeping up the walls of the ivory tower for two centuries. But it's been only in recent years that such intense cynicism has sprouted at the grassroots level, and it's spread quickly. Now, this really should come as no surprise to us, because our culture, after all, is is really ripe for conspiracies about Jesus. But I think the seeds of radical skepticism have been widely sown by mass media for over a decade, and it really starts with the Jesus Seminar, which was essentially a fringe group of scholars, although there were some mainline scholars in there, whose color-coded version of the Gospels repeatedly made headlines in the 1990s. And that got all sorts of biblical scholars, especially the more skeptical ones, to begin to start publishing for the public square. And that really spawned all of this media attention. So we've got the the Jesus Seminar moving on to the Da Vinci Code, to to, uh, misquoting Jesus, to the Jesus Papers, the Jesus Dynasty, all sorts of books, the Gospel of Judas that are coming out uh, in a sensationalist manner that are getting people to say, well, I guess I really should be skeptical about the origins of the Christian faith. Now, what is the main argument here that these skeptics have in which they're saying, well, we have evidence here that the Jesus of the Gospels is not the Jesus of history? What's their main argument here? I think you could ask that question a little different way, and you might ask, what's their main motivation? And I take it that their main motivation is that they do not want to be accountable to the biblical Christ. And so they come up with all sorts of reasons why they don't need to be accountable. Now, in terms of what's gone on in, in our society and our culture, the shift towards a, a, a postmodern kind of a skepticism has moved in the direction of treating all interpretations as uh, equal. You know, in other words, that's just your interpretation becomes kind of the mantra of hurried people who say, uh, it doesn't matter what you hold, I can hold to this. You can't have a preference for any particular view. And the, the uh, biblical scholars who are skeptical today are essentially saying, you can't prefer that view, that is the biblical Christ view, over any other view. And they're uh, attacking it from that perspective. Yet the evidence is really not on their side. And one of the lines that we mentioned in uh, a book that I've just co-authored with uh, Ed Komaszewski and Jim Sawyer, it is called Reinventing Jesus, is that an ounce of evidence, is worth a pound of presumption. And we try to present several ounces, in fact, several pounds of evidence that are going to be worth a ton of presumption. You've got presumption on the skeptical side, but you have evidence on our side. And the fact is, when you begin to look at the evidence, it's very clear it goes in one direction. 
Now, there's a best-selling book out there, Misquoting Jesus by Dr. Bart Ehrman, and he attacks the whole transmission process. He's questioning, how can we know that the scribes got it right? We don't even have copies of copies of copies of the originals. And he says that all the scribes made lots of mistakes. And is he right? And if so, how can we know that what we have today is the true Word of God? One of the illustrations that uh, Dr. Ehrman uses is the telephone game. He's used this, I think, uh, in radio broadcasts on NPR and places like that. Uh, Most of the listeners will be familiar with the telephone game where somebody... uh, states a couple of paragraphs, gives kind of a narrative story, and tells somebody in line, and it goes down the line, several people, and you get to the last person in line, and they're supposed to uh, state the, the whole thing again. Well, obviously, the intention of the telephone game is to get that message as garbled as possible. Now, the problem with using that kind of an illustration to show what's going on with the transmission of the text of the New Testament is threefold. First of all, it's an oral transmission. With the manuscripts of the New Testament, it's a written transmission, so you're not going to have nearly the occasion to get it garbled. Secondly, you've got more than one line of transmission. You have uh, several lines that are going back to the original documents, and then you've got these streams of transmission circulating in different parts of the world. So if you had, say, three lines of transmission for the telephone game, and you interviewed the last person in each line and asked them what the message was, you would find similarities of along all three of those messages, and you'd be able to find out probably a large extent of what the original message has to say. It's such a false analogy. The telephone game analogy is is so false for another reason. First of all, it's a bunch of junior high or high schoolers trying to mess up the message. (laughs) I know that we did. And and second of all, it it, it tries to go after an oral culture. Um, And it fails to take into consideration, Dan, the the heightened oral culture and and how fine-tuned it was and how careful they were in that culture, rather than the slapdash, haphazard telephone game? Well, it, it does it really in two different ways, because that, that, that telephone game is used both for the oral tradition behind the Gospels and then for the copies of the manuscripts. But one of the differences also about the manuscript copies is that we can examine some of these earlier people in the line, well, as with a telephone game, you only talk to the last guy in the line. We, we've got manuscripts that go back to the second century. But when you start thinking about the oral tradition behind the Gospels, this is one of the remarkable things. Up until the time of the printing press, the world essentially was a memorizing culture world. And when you get down to the first century, a person could be educated without being literate. Only about 10 to 20% of the people actually could read and write. But that does not mean that they were not educated. They were a memorizing culture. And uh, the rabbis, especially the Jewish culture in in Israel, the rabbis uh, had a little proverb that said that the person who instructs his student to recite a proverb 100 times is not worthy to be compared with a rabbi who instructs his student to recite it 101 times. Obviously, there's this culture of memorizing very important things from the sages, from the rabbis, from the teachers, and the disciples of Jesus would have fit right into that. They would have been memorizing essentially what he had to say and then finally writing it down in Scripture. Now, Dan, one of the arguments is that the Gospels were not written until about 20 to 30 years after the life of Christ. So could it be that in that 20 to 30 year period, as the message is being spoken, that people um, misunderstood some parts or they memorized incorrectly, and we've got corruption in the original core message? When it comes to the core message, it's absolutely solid. All of the Gospels speak of Jesus as being baptized by John 
as having a ministry in, in uh, Israel, as dying on a Roman cry, cross on being raised from the dead, and uh, you know all the rest of these things. There's a lot more details than that, but the, the fact is that core message is solid. Now, the interesting thing is that when people think about, well, gee, it took 20 to 30 years before they started even writing these Gospels, who's going to think that these guys just were sitting in their in their rooms and saying, you know, let's go let's go fishing today. Let's let's play chess today. I I, you know, I don't want to do anything else. These guys were out proclaiming the gospel. They were reciting it thousands of times and these were eyewitnesses who were uh, witnesses who were speaking the gospel. Consequently, you've got eyewitnesses who are uh, telling about the life of Jesus and eyewitnesses who were able to correct them if they got some of the facts wrong because they also had been there. In other words, you have memory in community, and you not only have memory in community, you have memory that is being repeated thousands of times, so it gets solidified before they ever had to put pen to papyrus and write a gospel. Now, Bart Arman also says that doctrines were changed during this period that we simply can't know what the original text affirmed. Uh, do other scholars agree with him, and what doctrines are affected by textual variants in the manuscripts? There, there's uh, one or two textual critics that may agree with that kind of an assessment, but they're pretty hard to find. And Ehrman has really gone, uh, I think, out on a limb in making that kind of an assessment. In fact, it's really hard to find in his book, Misquoting Jesus, where he explicitly says that, but he certainly gives that impression. Now, when you actually look at the actual evidence, what you discover is that we have so many manuscripts that agree with each other the vast majority of times that when you look at the places where they don't agree, we can, we can test this and say, what is it that is at stake? We don't have to come up with conjecture in any place. We don't have to uh, say, we don't have enough manuscripts here to tell us what the original wording is. We know that the original is going to be found in the manuscript data. And when we look at that data, we say, oh, it's either option A, B, or C, and all of these are orthodox. And that's the key. The fact is, we don't have to guess what the original said. We can look at the manuscripts. And when we do look at the manuscripts, no essential truth of the Christian faith is at stake. Now, when it comes to the deity of Christ, we often hear a lot about the Council of Nicaea and the role of the pagan emperor Constantine. Did he invent the doctrine of Jesus Christ being the divine Son of God? Is there any manuscript evidence that this is not the case? Constantine is said to have done that by Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code. He has the the theological gadfly, Sir Lee Teabing, make that acclamation in chapter 55. By the way, Constantine gets, a lot gets blamed on Constantine. Oh, yeah. He, <laughs> and, and the Nicene Council. <laughs> right. And, and, and Brown even says that the vote was relatively close. Well, I wouldn't call 318 to 2 relatively close, no matter how you, you do the numbers. Maybe it's the new math that Brown is, I don't know. <laughs> but the fact is that Constantine had nothing to do with the doctrine of the deity of Christ. The, what was on the table at the Council of Nicaea was not even whether Jesus was divine. It was how he was divine. But when you look at the actual manuscripts, uh, uh, let me back up and mention this. Dan Brown suggests that uh, uh, until the Council of Nicaea, there were about 80 Gospels circulating, and Constantine was the one who put in four Gospels into our canon when the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do whatsoever with the canon. And then he got rid of the other Gospels, and the four that he put in, he doctored up so they would now affirm the deity of Christ. None of that is even close to the historic reality. I don't know where he got his number of 80 Gospels. Uh, no one knows where that number came from. But I do know this, that the vast majority of these apocryphal Gospels that were out there, beginning no earlier than the 2nd century, and some of which went as late as the 9th century, far after the time that Constantine lived. The fact is that the vast majority of these 
affirm or heighten the deity of Christ while they subdue the humanity of Christ. Just exactly the opposite of what John Brown suggests. And the four Gospels that we have in our New Testament were the very earliest books of the New Testament to be recognized as Scripture. So there's, there's no sense that Constantine had anything to say about that. Now, these other Gospels that uh, Dan Brown and other scholars are referring to are the Gnostic Gospels. And there's a movement in New Testament scholarship to include these Gnostic Gospels in part of the study of the historical uh, study of Jesus Christ, that these Gospels should be included in that study. What are these Gnostic Gospels, and should they be included in our understanding of the historic understanding of who Jesus Christ is? Gnosticism simply has to do with uh, the idea of salvation by knowledge, and uh, the, the the Gnostic sect had to, uh, had beliefs that spirit is good and matter is evil. It was a huge dichotomy that could not be found in, in uh, Judeo-Christian ethics. So it's a, a brand new development that really started in the second century. Uh, and these Gnostic gospels have certain characteristics. Uh, they have secrecy secrecy to them where some message is revealed just to one of these apostles, but not the others. Therefore, it cannot be historically verified. And that's a very important point to catch when you compare this to the New Testament Gospels. They also are name droppers. They like to have the Gospel according to Philip, the Gospel according to Mary or Judas or or Thomas, which is kind of a Gnostic-like Gospel. But when you look at the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, all of them originally, as far as we can tell, were anonymous. So these guys were not name droppers at all. These names were assigned to them or attached to them because of good uh, historical tradition that said, yeah, I think this goes back to Luke or Matthew or John or Mark. But the Gnostic Gospels, because they didn't have historical verifiability, they had to get uh, on the docket as fast as possible. And the fast track to getting recognized is to attach an apostle's name to a particular document. These things, however, do not resemble anything that looks like genuine Christianity precisely because you cannot verify the data. Christianity is the only religion in the world that subjects itself to historical inquiry in such a way that it really lays itself open at risk to historical investigation. And that's because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The Gnostic Gospels move entirely away from that direction. And for these scholars to say, I don't believe in the canonical Gospels because of historical inquiry, but I'm going to believe in these where I can't validate anything, that, to me, is, is logic turned on its head. Well, Dan, could you uh, further expand on your last statement that Christianity is the only uh, religion that opens itself up to this kind of historical scrutiny? When I say that, obviously I'm including the Old Testament and Judaism in that, but ultimately the revelation of God in Jesus Christ demands this of us. When God became a man in time-space history, what actually happened is in the Incarnation, you have an invitation and a requirement of those who are going to examine the life of Christ to look at the data. Paul doesn't say, by the way, Jesus was raised from the dead, and he never appeared to any of the apostles, but just take my word, I know he's raised from the dead. He says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time after the the, uh, Easter Sunday. And And many of these people, most of these people, are still alive. So Paul is making the statement, this stuff is verifiable. Jesus did miracles in towns that are named to people that are named on dates that are named. And in other words... Let's examine the data because it can be examined. It can be verified. But you start looking at the uh, teachings of the Compassionate Buddha or the Quran or something like that or, or the Book of Mormon, you don't have historically verifiable data there. It's simply, you've got to take my word, this is the truth. 
that's not what the Judeo-Christian historiography is all about, and it's certainly not what the roots of Christianity are all about. That's an excellent point. Now, in your two decades of studies of these ancient New Testament documents, how much of the New Testament is in doubt regarding the original wording? I'd say it's it's about 1% that we're not really sure of that affects anything. In other words, uh, more than 1% is in doubt when it comes to things that actually can't even be translated, but they affect no meaning whatsoever. It's the, the most common kind of a textual variant is like the difference between A and an. So if I say a book or an apple, unless I'm from Arkansas where I say a book or a apple, you know, they, they don't know the difference of it. <laughs> but uh, the, the, about 1% of the textual variants we have some doubt about as to what the original wording has to say. Now, Bart Ehrman gives some pretty big numbers regarding textual variants and uh Places in the New Testament, we don't know what it says. He gives some big numbers here. Should we be concerned? Are the numbers really that big? He says that there are as many as 400,000 textual variants among the New Testament manuscripts, and I think he's exactly right. Uh, there are about that many, or as many as that. Uh, but part of the reason that we have that many textual variants is precisely because we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the manuscripts. And a textual variant is any place where the wording in the text is not exactly uniform, down to the very spelling of words. So if you have one 14th century manuscript that disagrees with all the rest of them, that counts as a textual variant. So you can well imagine that uh, to have 400,000 textual variants is not going to be too difficult to come by when we've got 25 to 30,000 manuscripts. The interesting thing is that of those, all those thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, we only have approximately three variants for every word in the New Testament. When the potential of variants we could have is really in the millions. Uh, let, me, let me, if I can, give one illustration. To say Jesus loves Paul in Greek, just those three words where the translation is exactly that can be done at least 18 different ways. And frankly, you can do it if you start doing some spelling variations or putting in a different verb or some conjunctions that don't get translated. It gets up into the hundreds of ways in which you could say that. So if we only have... Uh, three variants per word among the New Testament manuscripts on average, then to say uh, we've got 400,000 textual variants really sounds quite trivial. We could have tens of millions of textual variants potentially. Well, how much of the New Testament do we have that we have no idea what was in the original? I mean, that is how much of it the scholars have to fill in the blanks because there are no manuscripts with the right wording. That's an that's a interesting question and a significant one. It has to do with what's called conjectural emendation. But let me give a little background here before I get into that. That is, if you were to look at other ancient literature, say you look at Livy's histories, he wrote 142 books on the history of Rome. We only have copies of 35 of those books. So the vast majority of them are just gone forever. We know that he wrote 142, he tells us that. But we don't have uh, the, the vast majority of them. When it comes to the New Testament, we have all the books, we have all the text, and we have all the words of the text in some place in the manuscripts. The vast majority of New Testament scholars would say there is no need whatsoever to come up with any guesses without manuscript testimony for any place in the New Testament. That's just unparalleled for any other ancient literature. And so the uh, argument is actually going the other way. The more manuscripts we're, fi we're finding, the more accurate we're getting to the original text. It's not what Ehrman is saying. We're finding more and more errors and getting more questions. Yeah, and I'm not so sure that Ehrman is saying that, although it sounds like he is. He, he gives these impressions that I don't think he believes or any other textual critic believes, but 
But as, as we go down in time, the further we go away from the time that the New Testament was written, we're actually getting closer to the wording of the New Testament, as we find earlier and more important manuscripts. And uh, a student asked me uh, some time back about uh, what discoveries have changed our understanding of the wording of the New Testament, where we did not have that wording before. Uh, and I said, I can't think of one discovery in the last century that has made an impact where we say, we think this is the original and we did not know about the wording before. In the last hundred years, there's been no discoveries, as far as I know, that uh, suggest that. Now, how many thousands of manuscripts have you studied in which you're able to make that statement? <laughs> well, it's uh, studying those manuscripts in the textual apparatus of various Greek New Testaments, and there's a number of them that are out there that have uh, produced these. I've also examined uh, quite a few manuscripts, but... No single man is, uh, gonna, no single scholar is going to be able to examine thousands of manuscripts in uh, uh, his or her lifetime. Um, so uh, it's a matter of looking at the data that many others have provided for us. But uh, the, the data that have been provided in terms of the, the collations of these manuscripts have revealed that we just don't have anything that goes back to the original wording that is a new discovery that we didn't know about uh, 100 years ago. Well. What discoveries have been made in recent years regarding the text of the New Testament? I think there's, there's two that are, are noteworthy. Uh, one is especially noteworthy, and that's at the uh, Ashmolean Museum of Oxford University. About five years ago, they, they went through uh, hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of ancient papyri that had actually been dug up about 100 years earlier. And uh, they just didn't have enough scholars to go through these papyri to see what the data were. But somebody had, uh, thought of the idea of, let's see if we can separate out the Christian papyri from the non-Christian. And there's actually a very simple way to do that that I won't explain on, on the show. But uh, they were able to discover 17 New Testament papyri in that one uh, examination of all these uh, hundreds and hundreds of papyri that they had found. And among those, we have some new evidence that perhaps in Revelation 13:18. The number of the beast is not 666, but it's 616. Uh, we're not exactly sure yet, but that's uh, some intriguing evidence. Uh, and we've got some other variants that are affected. The other uh, group uh, that has been made, making some significant discoveries, I think, is uh, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, uh, which is my own institute. And we have discovered seven New Testament manuscripts in the last four years, including one that uh, is uh, an early copy of Mark's Gospel. It's just two leaves. We discovered it in Istanbul, and uh, it may be the earliest leaf of Mark III in existence, but we can't tell yet because it's a manuscript that's been scraped clean by another, a later scribe later centuries. We'll, we'll need to bring some heavy-duty equipment in there to uh, photograph it later and, and determine what the age of that manuscript is. Well, Dan, thanks for being on the show with us. And can you tell us about the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, what you folks are doing, and where we can go to find information on what you're doing here? Yeah, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts uh, has a website. It's a csntm.org. C-S-N-T-M. That's right. C-S is in C.S. Lewis, and N-T-M is an anti-M of uh, Wizard of Oz fame, you know. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, you can find out about uh, the manuscripts that we're, uh, we've photographed so far. Uh, it gives uh, a little bit of the history of what we've done in Istanbul or in Constantinople. And there's even a place that people can make donations. It's a tax-deductible uh, donation site uh, that we need to raise a lot of money so we can go to these uh, various locations. Uh, if I may, let me mention another uh, website that may be of uh, help to your listeners, and that is 
reinventingjesus.info, I-N-F-O. Uh, this is this new book that uh, Ed Komaszewski, Jim Sawyer, and I co-authored, and it's been out uh, for just a couple months now. But that website tells people what this book is about, and, and approximately 30% of the book is on textual criticism, the, the very thing we've been talking about in the last two shows. Dan, we have a question from the chat room. How do you answer the allegation that Jesus and Christianity was borrowed from pagan religions that came before him? Absolutely dead wrong. And in our book, Reinventing Jesus, we talk about that. It's the last section that talks about did Christianity rip off the pagan gods. And we talk about these alleged parallels about uh, dying and rising gods and the virgin birth of these gods and point out that uh, there really is no evidential basis for that prior to the time of Christianity. We want to thank Pat Zuckerman's special guest today, Dr. Dan Wallace. Evidence and Answers is a radio program that will equip you to know and defend your faith in Christ, to always give an answer to those who ask you about the hope that you have. Evidence and Answers will also help skeptics and people of other faiths to hear clearly the truth about Jesus. And I want to tell you about a free offer from Pat Zucharin in just a moment. You know, Pat speaks all over the world presenting and defending the claims of Jesus Christ to a non-believing world. From college campuses to youth events to church auditoriums, and he raises his own financial support to do so. And here's that free offer. Get a free copy of Pat's message on the Da Vinci Code when you go to evidenceandanswers.com. No obligation. It's yours for the asking at evidenceandanswers.com. At evidenceandanswers.com, you'll find Pat's articles, books, commentary on current events, and audio CDs on topics from atheism to Zen Buddhism. Once again, a free CD of Pat's message on the Da Vinci Code is yours for the asking when you go to evidenceandanswers.com. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Just a quick note to let us know you're listening means so much to us. Just go to evidenceandanswers.com and click on Contact Pat. This is Kevin Harris encouraging you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And thanks so much for listening. Be sure and spread the word about Evidence and Answers. Evidenceandanswers.com.